Now, as we kick off this new series, it's called You Asked For It, and uh, I've never done this series before. I've done like a frequently asked question series where I decided what we were going to, to teach on. Uh, but this time around, if you're in our database, you received an email, and we asked, what is a question you have or a friend or a family member has about God, faith, culture, life? And obviously, when we open up the floodgates, we're going to get a, a ton of responses. And it's not possible, and we're going to be in the series for six weeks. We're going to navigate six uh, significant questions or areas. But uh, since we can't touch on many of the questions that were asked, I also sent out, uh, you should have received this email yesterday, if you're in our database, uh, a list of six different questions that were asked this time around, but I've addressed in the last two to three years. And so you may have missed that message, or you're new to First Church, and questions like, how can I know that I'm saved? What's the significance of baptism? Uh, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? Why does God allow suffering? Those are questions we've addressed. So just a heads up, we're not going to address those in these next six weeks, but uh, that's also on our Facebook page as well. So if you don't have connection to either one of those, but you want the, a link to those messages, just email us and we'll, we'll get that to you. So today we're jumping in uh, to a significant question, one that we've probably all asked at some point in our lives, most of us, multiple times throughout our life, and that is the question, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? So let me pray for us and we'll get into it. Father, as we uh, sit with you now and open up your word, we pray that uh, we can sense your guidance, we can especially sense your presence. We need to know, many of us, only that you care. Do you care about how our lives go? And so we pray for, for clarity. We pray for uh, more of you in our lives so that we can rest on the right thing. God, we also lift up those who are currently in the path of the hurricane, even as we uh, sit here, uh, people in the Bahamas, uh, many who didn't evacuate. God, I pray that you will divert the hurricane in the days to come. And even now that you'll provide uh, shelter and necessary care and provisions for those people and that we as a church at large will do our part and you'll lead us to opportunities in ways that we can help. But God, we pray for your relief, your reprieve in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So what is God's will for your life? What is God's plan for your life? Does he have a plan at all? <laughs> and why is it so hard to figure out if he does? This is why it's so frustrating. This is why it's one of the most commonly asked questions, regardless of how long we've been in relationship with Christ. And so I want to run through a variety of questions that we ask because we, most of us, if not all of us, at each stage of our life, at each stage of an opportunity or a decision that we're facing, we ask, what does God want me to do in this situation? How do I know, here we go, how do I know who I'm supposed to marry? Right? Is it going to be a memo, a sign from heaven? Is it going to be written in the clouds like, thank you, God, I don't have to decide now. So how do I know who I'm supposed to marry? How do I know if she's the one? If you've been with us much time at all, you know that I can get on a little bit of a rant on the fact that there is no the one. Another message for another time. We'll get to that one day. Does God want me to play she loves me, she loves me not for the rest of my life? If you don't know what that is, that's a really awkward thing that you're probably wondering, what does that mean? Well, you have these... You have Flower petal has multiple petals, right? The, she loves me, she loves me not. Or he loves me, he loves me not. Right, this is the game that we play. It's random and however it lands, you know, whether or not that's affirming of what we really want, we pick up another flower petal, right? <laughs> I'm going to get the answer that I want. I'm not going to look for a sign. I'm going to go find my sign. That's what we do. This person probably agrees with what I want. I'll go talk to them. What if I get it wrong? What does wrong look like? Will I know it's the wrong decision right away? 
What does affirmation of a right decision look like? What do I do if I know she's the one, but she hasn't got the word yet? (laughs) Dilemma. How do I know if I should even get married? What school should I go to? What should I choose as a major? What's the right career track for me to be on? What job should I take? Where should I live? Which house should I buy? Decisions, options. And as I was studying this, and many of you realize this, especially uh, um, as you've had conversations with uh, maybe your grandparents or your grandparents, uh, with your grandparents about their parents, like we live in a day and age that is unprecedented, right? It's still relatively new that probably this question has been asked. For most of our lives, we've asked it, but we live in a a day and age of endless options. (laughs) In a sense, we've kind of created... You know, our own problem, if I were to have a conversation with my grandpa who has passed, like, hey, did you ever ask this question, what is God's will for your life? No, I just got up and lived my life, right? I did what I was supposed to do, but now we're presented with many more options than ever before, which can then lead us to ask this question more times than ever before. So does God really have one person for me to marry, one job for me to take, one place for me to live, one direction for me to go? Probably not. Now, again... The dichotomy of this is that can be frustrating, but it can also take some pressure off as well. (laughs) Because we want to know that we're making the right decision, but at the same time, it's good to know that there's not just one right decision most of the time. But one of the most daunting realities of life is having to choose, having to make a decision. So some of you today maybe have shown up because maybe a friend invited you because of what the topic was about and you're facing a big decision in life and you're hoping that at the end of this 30-minute teaching that you get something written in the clouds, angels come down and you're like, that's it, thank you, I don't have to decide, you decided for me, thank you God, you gave me word. And maybe that will happen. But I'm guessing that for the majority of us that probably won't. <laughs> now again, some of you are disappointed because you're like, that's why I came, to get an answer for you to tell me what to do with my life. And it can be frustrating. But for most of us, that probably won't happen. And here's why. Here's what we absolutely have to understand. God cares more about the transformation of your life than the location or the circumstance of your life. This is what he cares about above all. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And we're going to keep coming back to this throughout the message. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And then notice this next part. Out of that, he says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's, we want that second part. The first part, that takes time. But that's his process. Through transformation, we can then discern and be better at simply making decisions. Now, the context of this, in Romans 12, 1, he, talk, he cast the vision for our lives to be a living sacrifice. That's no small thing. Why do I exist at all? What is the purpose of my life? Well, it's to get beyond myself, it's to live in such a way where I'm reflect, reflecting Christ himself, who lived a life of ultimate sacrifice for me. You're to be a living sacrifice. So it starts there. That's the proper understanding that sets us on the right course of transformation. And transformation then becomes the catalyst for clarity and discernment. See, location without transformation is missing the entire point. (laughs) And so circumstances can align. You can find yourself in what feels like, what seems like a right location, but miss the main point of inward transformation. 
And that's a dangerous place to get where we have the illusion of success because the world around us, like, wow, look at you know, where, you, where you've come from, right? All that you have, have accomplished, but they don't realize that we fail to do the most important work, which is internal. Being in the right place with the right people doesn't do us much good if we haven't become the right person. I mean, all of us can probably relate to a certain extent. Maybe you got what you asked for, what you longed for, what you believed would make you happy, and you still weren't happy because you thought that fulfillment, satisfaction was purpose, was in that thing. Maybe it's a job title, a certain level of status. Maybe it was something that you acquired. But oftentimes, we get everything we want, and we're still not happy. This is why so many rich people are depressed. The circumstances for their life couldn't be better. They have it all, literally. But they're perpetually restless, constantly acquiring, driven by discontentedness with who they actually are. This is why for literally uh, centuries, you know, certain authors and theologians have said one of the most dangerous things you can do is to sit alone by yourself in a room, in a quiet room where there's nothing else going on because then you're haunted by who am I really? Who am I without the things that surround me? So we have to know that God's primary will for our lives, it's not circumstantial, it's not geographical, God's primary will for your life is personal. It's personal. He cares more about the person you are becoming. God's will for your life is not what you do or where you go, but instead who you are. His will for your life is not what you do or where you go, but who you are. See, we spend so much of our lives trying to figure out, right? This is, the, this is why it's one of the most commonly asked questions. Because we often wonder, where am I supposed to go? When am I supposed to go? And failing to realize that God's highest priority for us is who he's wanting, wanting us to become. So the challenge now for us is we have to ask this question, each one of us personally. What is going to drive me more? Is it going to be right circumstance or right character? Circumstance all too often is what is praised by the world around us. And we'll be inclined to be driven by that. I need to have the right thing, be in the right place at the right time. But God says, I'll take care of all of that. What I'm about is your heart. God cares more about your growth than anything else. And growth is not dependent on circumstance. So what is it that facilitates growth through God's design? What typically facilitates growth more is not a memo from heaven. We're not programmed to be robots, right? God's will for our lives is not hidden, and he's like, oh, I hope they figure it out. I hope they turn up that stone. I hope they pay attention to the clouds today. Then we get up into heaven and be like, oh, you know, good try. You missed it. That's not not how it's supposed to work. (laughs) It's not supposed to be some secret to figure out. What typically facilitates growth more is not this obvious sign that comes our way that just tells us what to do, but instead having to make a decision. Having to make a decision. God gives us the opportunity to make decisions. Part of the reason why is because he grows us through that very process. Many of you, even having made the wrong decision and experienced the the consequence and walking through the valley, you realize that God allowed me to go down that path because he was going to use my mistakes and failures for how he wants to grow me that eventually gets me to where he wants me to go. Now, if you're over the age of 25... You may uh, have played a, a certain game growing up, and you guys can tell me after the service if uh, under 25 still do this. But uh, if you're over the age of probably around 25, you've known since being a kid that the best way to make a decision was eeny, meeny, miny, mo. 
Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say the whole thing because it's, it's catchy. It's a good, good, good thing to, to remember. It's a little nostalgic moment. And if you've never heard this, it's about to get really weird. But when you're a kid, and if you're still doing this as an adult, then you probably need more than one message today. But uh, <laughs> it's, an, it's an either or, right? I get to go this way. I could go that way, right? This person, that person. Psychologists call it narrow framing. Oftentimes we get stuck on I have to do this or I have to do this as opposed to what is the best thing to do in general. So eeny, meeny, miny, mo. This or this. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Catch a tiger by its toe. Right? Like this is an actual thing. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. If he hollers, let him go. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. My mother told me to pick the very best one and you are not it. Right? This brings you back to those kickball days, right? And you're like, I don't want to choose. I don't want to choose. And so it's a trite way of really not having to make a decision because this ridiculous riddle makes it for you. And so it's a passive way to get to the outcome. But the reality is your character is formed through the process of decision-making. This is how God has designed us. I mean, we've all at some point probably sought counsel from God or from another and said, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. The root of this question, though, is fear. Fear of making the wrong decision, fear of going the wrong direction, because there's just too much anxiety that comes with the possibility of being wrong. So I found out in preparation for this marriage that decidophobia is an actual thing. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you already know that you have it. Decidophobia is the fear of making decisions. Some of us can relate to that. One author said this, if we ask, how can I know the will of God, we may be asking the wrong question. The scriptures do not command us to find God's will for most of life's choices, nor do we have any passage in in the Bible instructing on how it can be determined. It says, yet we persist in searching for God's will because decisions require thought and sap energy. It's exhausting, isn't it, that process? So we seek relief from the responsibility of decision-making, and we feel less threatened by being passive rather than active when making important choices. All of us can relate to this. This is why we want a shortcut. Just tell me what to do. And we seek out the people that will. We just say, oh, it's obvious this is what you're saying. We, we, we sidetrack God's primary process for a character building, which is that wrestling time and discerning his will for our lives and paying attention to the work that he's wanting to do inwardly. We falsely believe that God's will for our lives is merely avoiding mistakes, <laughs> arriving safely at death one day. And so we remain paralyzed by fear, perpetually stationary, kind of immobile, not doing anything. But if you read much of scripture at all, you will very quickly see the number of examples, the number of people that God used after they made a mistake, after they made wrong choices, because he's primarily in the business of redemption. I mean, that's why none of us would probably have the desire to read a book by someone who lived, you know, a perfect life, right? Number one, it'd be predictable, and number one, it wouldn't be relatable. <laughs> what are the stories, the movies, the, the books that draw us in? It's the people that have overcome, because we want to overcome as well. This is how we're wired, and they did the hard work of overcoming. So let's get personal a little bit. If you spent the first 18 years of your life having every single decision made for you by your parents, you will, the reality is you will have a much more difficult time making a decision. You have a little bit more to overcome. 
Maybe some of you had parents who said, wear these clothes, take these classes, go to that school, apply for this job, marry that person, buy this house. And so you never were given the opportunity to walk in the freedom of having the opportunity to make a decision, and you missed out on the the character building that should have taken place at a much younger age. So God forms our character through the process of making decisions and experiencing the consequences. (laughs) I read a book uh, a couple years ago that I recommended back at, at that time called The Gift of Failure, and it was written for, for parents and for teachers and the, all that we can learn, especially at a young age, through making choices on our own, experiencing the consequences. Man, that's hard as a parent. You know that your kid might be making the wrong decision. Obviously, you want to keep them safe and all, but you know that they need to, if they're going to grow up, they need to experience the consequences of the decisions that they're, they're making. So they get better at making decisions when they experience those consequences. So this is the essence of being a responsible human being, isn't it? Having the ability to make a decision and following through, even though we don't know how it's going to turn out. See, God has it in mind that we would wrestle a little bit. That's good that you struggle to make a decision sometimes. So he has it in mind that after that wrestling, we would make a decision and that we would trust him with the results, knowing that, don't miss this, if we remain in him. As we're making decisions, if we're remaining, clinging to him, we will never end up aimless or without purpose. He promises that, but it always begins with his presence in our lives. So this is the process, right? I mentioned we come back to Romans chapter 12, and the question is, okay, how exactly do I renew my mind, experience transformation that leads to discernment? Look at John chapter 15. Jesus himself said this, remain in me. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Now notice this. He closed by saying this section, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if I do anything with my life apart from Christ, then it technically has no value in the sense of the things that matter the most beyond me and even beyond my lifetime. So to bear fruit is to reflect Christ and be a living sacrifice to live in such a way that matters beyond just myself. So if our motivation is to reflect Christ, to bear good fruit, then our priorities in life will align with God's. And we can be confident in making right decisions. (laughs) What a place of freedom to get to. So here's the question. What's the why to the what or the who? What is the why to the what or the who? Oftentimes we might know what we want to do or want to have, but we always have to ask the question, what's the why? What's the why behind the reason why I want this specifically or this person? So a couple of examples, practical examples, discerning what house to buy. What's the why? Is it merely like a status symbol? Is it just bigger and better for bigger and better sake? Or do I have a vision for how I want to use what God has given me the opportunity to buy? I want to use this maybe as a a, a gift, a a ministry opportunity of hospitality. My brother lives in Indianapolis, and he's trying to figure out, you know, what to do with his house. And uh, I love his vision for it. Um, and, And having a pool is a very fun thing for the family, but ideally you'd probably want it to go even beyond that. And so he decided that he wanted to have a pool at his house because his kids are getting to be a certain age where he would love for their friends, right, to come and hang out there, right? Friends from school, friends from the youth group, and that would be kind of the the place where they get to hang. So it's a broader vision. Now, or on the other hand, he could just want to keep tabs on his own kids, right? It goes both ways. 
but he wants to utilize this as a tool that goes beyond him. When you're discerning the right person to marry, you should be asking the question, are we actually better together? Are we better together? Do we make each other better? Biggest question probably to ask is, does this person that I'm considering marrying love God more than they love me? Because we will fail if we don't have a foundation in God. If I'm getting married just because I think this person will make me happy, I'm already on the wrong trajectory. I'm already missing the main point of marriage, and that is to abide in God, remain in him, and reflect him through being better together. When I'm discerning this job or that job, what's the why behind the what? Is, is it primarily money? I can make more money, or is it geography? Right? This is a better place to live. Those aren't bad, right? Like you, you want to provide for your family. You want to live in a place where you enjoy. Like those are, those are valid, but also secondary factors. I've told the story before, but I'll briefly summarize. Back when I finished uh, undergrad and was going into grad school, I only had the mindset of I'm going to get a job where I can make as much money as possible. It was a small view, right, to pay for grad school. Not a, not a bad reason, but God made me fail at that telemarketing job, right? Like, I was really, really bad at it. And he was trying to shake me, wake me up, like, Darren, I'm going to provide for you, Right? And so that's when I started at First Church, right? As an intern making $200 a week that lasted for, for three years. But it was purposeful. It went way beyond me, and obviously God took care of me through it all. See, if you're remaining in God and desiring what he desires above all, you can confidently pay attention to three specific things, right? We're going to keep getting practical as we, we close out this message. You can confidently pay attention to, number one, opportunity, passion, and giftedness. None of these three things are accidents. Now, the big if is if you're remaining in Christ. God, I want to honor you with my life above all. And if I'm doing that, pay attention to opportunity. Pay attention to what excites you. Pay attention to how God has wired you. We'll come back to that in a second. But I want you to take a look at Psalm 37.4. Essential to understand this. Take delight in the Lord. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So we all have desires, right? Even if you've never been to church before, you have a desire for how your life would go. You could read this and think it's a formula. Oh, okay. Now if I take interest in God, then he's going to give me the desires of my heart. No, I take interest in God. I delight in him and he shapes me. He forms me to then desire a God-honoring life. So if I desire to please God above all, then I can live in the freedom to do what I want. Don't feel guilty for just doing what you want if you're remaining in Christ. Because out of the overflow of remaining in him will come desires to honor him. Now let's examine these three specific areas. When I'm discerning opportunity, right? When you pay attention to the opportunity that comes your way, job, house, spouse, whatever it might be, is, it, is this, that's the first criteria, is this even possible, right? I'm remaining in God, I'm trusting that he's gonna lead me to right opportunity. So you evaluate, you take time discerning if you're going to step into that opportunity. Secondly, pay attention to your passions. If you're remaining in Christ, you need to pay attention to the fact that he's created you in such a way to get enthusiastic, excited about different things. That's no small thing. I'm always fascinated by people who are interested in things that I would never be interested in because I'm more fascinated by why they're fascinated by them. And what's cool is God's created all of us uniquely. So pay attention to your, your passion, your enthusiasm about whatever it might be. That counts for something. And the last thing is giftedness. Again, we're all wired uniquely. God has gifted each of us for the sake of bringing honor to him. So could I make a difference in ways that matter because of the way that God has created me if I go this direction? 
Right? We look around like, okay, it seems like I'm naturally better at that than, than most other people. Maybe God wants me to use that beyond me. So I was thinking about this last week. Uh, last Sunday, there was a golf tournament on. It was kind of the year-end uh, playoffs. And so this golf tournament, the winner was going to get an astronomical amount of money, literally $15 million to the winner. Like, this is the kind of world that we live in. So I'm watching this golf tournament. I like watching golf. And I'm just thinking about, like, that's, that's crazy. Like, I think that I might have a passion for being a professional golfer all of a sudden. So <laughs> I'm taking sincere interest. You know, I've played golf uh, before, not much in the last 15 months because I have a 15-month-old. But... Uh, I'm thinking about this, like, wow, that'd be exciting to be a professional golfer. And those of you that have golfed, and, you, know, you know that feeling of hitting a, a good golf shot once or twice around. And so you see that happen on TV, and you're like, I know that feeling. Like, oh, man, I'm passionate. So, okay, well, let's evaluate this, because here comes the passion. Maybe I, maybe I should be a professional golfer. All right, so let's start with opportunity. Nope, there's none of that. There is zero opportunity. <laughs> so uh, that pretty much is a pretty good sign that uh, I should continue on the course that God has me, right? Maybe a little bit of passion that I could maybe manufacture. Uh, giftedness, nope, definitely not that either. So <laughs> I would be wasting my life. Can you imagine? It probably wouldn't make like any kind of headline, but maybe a fo- Facebook post, you know, 40-year-old pastor decides to become a professional golfer, having not had a golf lesson his entire life, you know, a dad of a 15-month-old, a husband of you know, a wife almost five years decides to take uh, his time on the road away from them to try to accomplish this dream of his, and he's operating on passion alone. Good luck. I hope that he has not. (laughs) You're probably going to see me again. I'm going to circle back around and tell you what you already knew. That was a bad life decision. (laughs) All right, so there are certain measurements, criteria that we can pay attention to, opportunity, passion, and giftedness. Now, you also might be asking the question, and I want to know, I want ultimate clarity. How do I know if I'm going against God's will, right? How do I know that I'm currently living in opposition of God's will? Two specific measurements. Number one, does it look like disobedience? Let's call it what it is. Is it disobedience? In the way that you're living right now, God's will for your life will never be inconsistent with God's character. Right? So we should never waste time wrestling with things that are in direct disobedience to what, how he's commanded us to live. Is your activity inconsistent with God's desire for you to reflect him? Is your activity inward focused where the only one who benefits is you? Right, so this is where I could easily go on the rant about the fact that there is no such thing as a soulmate, right? That that just makes me so angry when I see on the news or have conversations with people. They're married. Maybe they've been married for two years. They've been married for 30 years. And they end up, uh, you know, uh, emotionally connected to someone who's not their spouse, physically attracted. And they'll say, oh, man. They're my soulmate. Like, no, they're not. That's ridiculous. Like, that's, that's not even a thing. God would never lead you into that kind of opportunity to be in direct disobedience to his vision for marriage that he has for your life. So there's certain criteria that we just have to ask, oh, wow, I really feel a certain sense of emotion. Maybe this is the right thing. That's a dangerous place to get, which leads us to the second measurement. Are you operating on emotion alone? Are you operating, making decisions on emotion alone? One of the causes for decision paralysis is the belief that you should feel a certain way for a decision to be right. Well, oftentimes obedience doesn't feel like the thing that you want to do, but it's always the right thing. Another area where we can be prone to uh, provide as a a context or filter for making decisions, I've probably said it, you know, in the last six months myself, but you have to be careful with the phrase, I just don't feel any peace about it. I'm not saying that's a bad phrase, 
But we have to be careful to not give full credence to that alone. Because oftentimes that can just be a cop-out. That can be a passive way of, no, I'm I'm just not feeling it. And so that's really just kind of paralysis delaying having to make the decision. And in that moment, we mistakenly give supernatural credence to the emotion of anxiety. The reality is peace comes on the other side of obedience sometimes. Peace comes on the other side of obedience. When our lives honor God above all, no matter the emotion of the moment or the circumstance. Jesus himself in the garden. When he hears his father God give him a command, the vision for his life, the ultimate why to the reason why he's on earth in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus wrestled in the way that we're supposed to wrestle more than at any other point. He literally sweat drops of blood, right? Most of us, hopefully, all of us have never experienced that level of anxiety. But his father, right, abandons him in that moment because he's going to take on the sin of the world. This is his calling for his life that he would go to the cross and die for you. And Jesus responds, I love the humanity of this moment, is there any other way? Is there any other way? But because he loves his father and because he thinks that you're worth it, what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. If he was riding on emotion alone, he's running out of the garden, didn't he? Now what was the vehicle? What was the vehicle for Jesus when it came to living out God's will for his life? It's prayer. Right? This is one of those, right, when you grew up in, in Sunday school and the teacher asked you, What's the answer? You're like, oh, Jesus, God, prayer, right? Oftentimes, this is what it comes back to. (laughs) The simplicity of walking with Jesus that results in being able to make decisions. Prayer is the single most important aspect in discerning God's will for your life. For two reasons specifically. A lot of reasons, but two specifically. Number one, you're sharing the burden. You're sharing the burden. God, I desperately need your help. You're remaining in him. And number two... It's an opportunity to pray for the right thing. What is the right thing? Don't miss this. When you pray, don't pray for direction. When you pray, don't pray for direction, but for wisdom. All of us instinctively pray for direction. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but we need to be primarily pray for wisdom. Because if we're praying for direction, that's another version of passivity saying, God, just tell me what to do. But if I pray for wisdom, trusting that God gives it to me, then I'll be confident in being able to make the right decision. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it'll be given to you. Seems too easy, doesn't it? This is God's design. This is the beauty of prayer. You ask for wisdom, he gives you wisdom. And one of my favorite parts of that scripture is without finding fault. You have baggage, you have darkness, you have a history, and sometimes we feel guilty coming to God and asking God for something that we know that we're not deserving of. But we have a God who's not going to shame us because of our dumb decisions up to this point. Like, oh, here you are, you know, 50 years into your life, finally asking for wisdom. We don't have that kind of God. He gives, it to, gives wisdom to us without finding fault. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Wisdom comes from prayer for God's help. And we gain wisdom through time spent with God, but also time spent seeking the wise counsel of others. God speaks through others, thank goodness. I remember when I uh, was discerning whether or not to step into this position. I've been at First Church for 18 years, uh, but about three and a half years ago when the elders approached me and asked me if I would consider that, um, I hadn't been considering it. And uh, the former senior pastor, Greg, you know, had left, and uh, Emily and I hadn't, hadn't even been married a year yet. And so that wasn't even on my, my radar, wasn't considering that. And they asked me, and so my immediate response wasn't even, what, is, what do I want or don't want? I just 
I probably spent 100 plus hours seeking counsel from those that I respect and trust, past mentors, present mentors, other lead pastors at other churches, guys that I network with because I'm trusting that God is going to speak through other people. Right? And so you talk to the people right, that you're in relationship with, that you know that might affirm you, but you also talk to the ones who are going to challenge you with the why. And so we take these decisions very seriously, and we should never make a decision in isolation. We can gain confidence through remaining in God and also seeking the wise counsel of others. Now, I love the beauty of Scripture, and, and even though there's 66 books, you see common themes kind of interwoven together. And even though I've used several different scriptures to, uh, to speak on the wisdom that God desires for us, I love in Colossians, Paul, how he literally puts all that we've talked about together in two verses. Notice this, Colossians 1, 9 and 10. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. The more I remain in Christ, the better I will be able to discern right motivation. The more I remain in Christ, the less I will want to take a job just for money or just for geography, the less I will want to get married just to be happy, the less I will want stuff that is just for me. And I'll understand as I'm remaining in Christ, God has other priorities, the needs that I can meet for the sake of the kingdom and the person he's wanting us to become, one who is not driven by temporary trivialities. Simply put, what does living out the will of God look like, right? If you've you know, kind of been distracted, checked out the whole message, like this is your verse to hold on to. Like when it comes down to, I want to live in the will of God and have no doubt, here are three specific things we see in scripture. First Thessalonians chapter five, verses 16 through 18. Number one, Rejoice always. Two, pray continually. Three, give thanks in all circumstances. It says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Man, if, if your life consists of choosing joy, no matter the circumstance, praying regularly, remaining in Christ, in gratitude in all things, that's a great life. I don't know who's going to talk at my funeral one day, but if they list those three things, that's good with me. That's a great life. Now I want to close uh, with what I think is just a beautiful, could be a prayer kind of for our remaining. It's found in the book of Psalm, chapter 37, verses 23 and 24. I love this. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. That's his promise for you today. Again, no matter your past, no matter your journey. Now, I want to be loud and clear, you know, as we close this out and we get, get ready to sing a song or we get to, you know, call upon the name of Jesus. God's primary will for your life is that you would know him. It doesn't really matter the decisions that you're facing if you're not in relationship with him. This past Sunday night was a beautiful celebration of 16 people who stepped into that. You're like, yeah, I'm done living life on my, my own at the, the YMCA last Sunday night. Got a picture of uh, 16 people there, uh, ages uh, single digits to literally age 82, saying, I want Jesus, right? That's primary. That's step one. No other decision in your life is important until you decide to give your life to Christ. So I'm going to close with some prayer, and then we're going to have a time of response where we get to, to maybe some, some of you for the very first time, choose him as Savior and Lord. God, as we uh, show up to you today,
I pray that we have a sense of desperation where we want you more than we even want to make the right decision in our life. May we approach you because we don't know any other way as opposed to just approaching you when we need direction. So God, we pray for wisdom. We pray that we can have the wisdom that we need to be confident in the decisions you're calling us to, knowing that you will provide for us and you will carry us. And we're so grateful for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.